welcome to the Destination Begin podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Smith. I've lost over 250 pounds. I've started my life over multiple times and managed to find humor, lessons, and joy in the process. And now I'm here sharing those stories with you. Thanks for joining me. Hi, hi. Welcome to the episode. So happy you're here. I had a bunch of you tell me this week that you listen. That makes me really happy. Today, specifically, Michelle, uh, so happy that you Marcoed me to tell me that you just listened to my podcast on your walk. Thank you. And so I'm paying you back by shouting you out on the podcast. So I guess if you want me to shout you out, you should um, tell me you listen. (laughs) Amber is really good about sending me messages when she listens and tells me what she loves about the episodes, which is super, super nice. Same with Molly B. Same with Sharon. Same with Ella, Alicia, and Shannon. So thank you so much. Um, I did have a weird um, experience one time where I had a new client and I was training them and I didn't know her at all, but she had found me through mutual acquaintances and then had listened to all my podcasts. And so we started working out, I started working out with her and she just started asking me really interesting questions about my life because she knew all about my life listening to the podcast, but it was very off-putting. She was like, so what do you think your relationship with your dad is like now? And I'm like, what, what? Hi, I don't know you. And then I realized, oh, she's referring to a podcast episode about my dad. So it was really weird. But hey, I put put myself out there. So it's not like it's a problem. It's just, it's a little odd sometimes. Or like I would tell people what was going on in my life and they'd be like, oh yeah, I know. I listened to your podcast this week. So it's interesting. But I don't, I guess I don't go into as much current events anymore um, as I did, I guess, in different periods of time with the podcast. So anyway, if you listen, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the episodes because, you know, it makes my day. It makes me feel like this is worth doing. Um, so it's been a busy week. We went to uh, the, the, the Bay Area. We went to San Francisco area. I have to be clear because I'll tell people that Roy is from San Francisco and he'd be like, no, I'm not. I'm not from San Francisco. I'm from the Bay Area. I'm from Marin, which is different. And I'd be like, potato, potato. But now that I was just there this week and I saw more of where he's actually from, I get it. San Francisco is a hot fever dream of traffic and people pooping on the street and getting free drugs uh, from the government. That's literally what's happening there. The homeless problem is really out of control. The drug problem is really out of control, which is, I think, why there's so many homeless people. And instead of, like, dealing with the actual problem, they just bring, literally, they pay these people to come on scooters and little whatever to the people who are addicts and bring them, essentially, drugs because that's better than all the overdoses and people dying. So they're just keeping them alive by giving them their drugs. And it's just, it's awful. And then literally walking down the streets. I'm not exaggerating, just going down Market Street, there's piles of human poo everywhere. And it's such a problem that there's an app that you can send the GPS coordinates of the poop and then someone will come and clean it up. So San Francisco, downtown, not my favorite thing. Um, The bridge is beautiful. I love the Golden Gate Bridge. I think it's amazing. I had a really, really powerful experience there. Um, life-changing, perspective-changing, life-affirming, and so I get very emotional when I see the Golden Gate Bridge. But do I want to rock around downtown San Francisco? No, I do not want to do that. Um, And I'm really glad that I don't have to do that. (laughs) um, 
So Roy is from Marin, I guess Marin County. I guess I don't even really know. But um, San Rafael is where we stayed at this adorable little Airbnb. Oh my gosh. It was this little like back of the house, side door, basement type mother-in-law unit that was adorable. The world's most comfortable bed. Um, It was amazing. Um, We were barely there, so it doesn't really matter. But I love a good Airbnb. It's so much cheaper than a hotel. I feel like it just felt like I felt loved. There was a giant, huge carousel of Starbucks Keurig pods. So Kristen was happy the minute I walked in. First thing I saw, I'm like, I'm going to be happy here. So that was great. We brought Gus with us, which I, I, I'm going to cover his ears. I didn't want him to come because it's a lot to bring the dog and we were carrying on backpacks. It's just a lot to juggle. But Roy was like, I cannot leave the dog. Roy and Gus are just pathetically, they're just, it's, it's a adorable, ridiculous codependency that I don't understand how it happened. Cause Gus, I bought you, I paid for you. My hard earned sweat bought you, brought you into this world into not in this world, but into this little world you live in over here on the beach. And then just like that, Roy comes along and do do do. He's number one. I it's like the ultimate betrayal. But we brought Gus along. I was very glad because Gus is a great cuddle buddy on an airplane. So anyway, we uh, we went out there. San Rafael's where we stayed. Roy's family's kind of scattered around in that area. Um, he's got a brother in Sonoma, a brother in Roner Park, a brother in Stockton, and. Um, so we were only there for a few days. It was a cruelly short trip for Roy. Going out there is really important to our relationship because I get to see Roy in Roy's world with his people and hear stories about his life and see him in that environment, which, you know, he came here and he just merged into my world. And I love him and I see him, but it's so different when you see someone with their people in their environment. And so I have only done that now two times, but I learned so much about him and I see him so like in just different facets. And um, not surprisingly, I see just more depth in him, more beauty in him, more strength in him. He has been through really difficult things that a lot of people would be bitter and angry and hardened by. His whole family has overcome really difficult things in their own lives and together. And I just see softening and beautifying and empowerment and strength. And I just, I loved seeing that in him even more. And then getting to know his family has been really fun. His family is all, um, they're very different um, from my family. And so I love that. I love the new personalities and dynamics. Um, But the most fun, you guys, Roy has a twin, an identical twin. And Rich and Roy, they look very similar. I mean, obviously I can tell them apart. They're not identical anymore in the face. But height-wise, gestures, especially their side profile when they both have their glasses on, it's so crazy. But what I found out this trip was very, very enlightening. 
See, Kathy has been married to Rich for a really long time. I forget how long, like maybe 20 years or something. And so she knows Rich very well and she knows Roy very well. And so, you know, I've known Roy for a little over a year and we're working on our little dynamics and, you know, our little nuances. And what I found out was just amazing that Kathy has basically got experience that she can teach me about being married to Roy because she's been married to his twin. So, you know, I said, you know, Roy is a little bit scatterbrained. I mean, he's a little bit of a dumb blonde sometimes. Um, He gets really busy and then he gets really tired and then he's like, I have to repeat myself a bunch of times. And this is what happens. Roy is a ditz. I get frustrated telling him something for the 74th time. I snap at him. He gets his feelings hurt because I snapped and was a biatch. And then I apologize for being impatient. And Kathy's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what happens over here. He forgets something. I remind him 7,000 times. But then I'm, I'm not nice and I have to apologize. And so I was like, well. And Roy's like, you guys need to stop talking right now. Busted. 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 So uh, it was very funny to hear that. These little silly things in our relationship, I can just get advice from Kathy on. Um, Roy just needs a sticky note on his forehead at all times, and then I won't have to remind him, and then there will be no hurt feelings. It's really actually all his fault. Um, Anyway, so it was a great trip. We got to go on a nice hike. I got to meet his oldest brother, who I hadn't met yet. Um, We got to have a really nice sushi dinner where I found out it's all shellfish I'm allergic to. I found out a while ago I'm allergic to shrimp. And um, we went out to sushi and I was just really careful to make sure there was no shrimp in any of my rolls or anything. But um, lots of crab was eaten. And I found out that, oh, it is all shellfish. Um, I was fortunate enough to not be as sick as when I eat shrimp, but um, it was not a pleasant um, night sleeping. It's just the nausea um, and like just heinous. when I have a shrimp, I mean, like, sorry, this is graphic. I vomit. Like, it's like my body is, is violently rejecting it. It's not going to try to be digested. It's just like, get out Satan. And uh, crab, very nauseated. Not the immediate evacuation. Um, that was nice. But, oh my gosh. I will never, ever, ever be able to look at crab or shrimp without being like, <sighs> so I wish I could have that response to like M&M's. Twizzlers. <laughs> Excuse me, I have to drink water because I just got back from a really long walk. So this is going to sound gross. Okay, that wasn't too terrible. Um, my very first podcaster that I ever followed, Julie Bauer of Paleo MG. I loved her. I was obsessed with her for a long time. Then I got real tired of her. And then I recently went back and started following her. And now I'm obsessed with her again. But I listened to her podcast religiously. And she would just be yawning while recording, drinking water. She didn't edit any of it. Her dog would bark. And it was like, what are you doing? You cannot put on a podcast that is this terribly. I mean, I loved the content, but she'd be like, anyway, sorry, I'm yawning, guys. I should really sit up. I'm like, stop. And then she would just stop and drink water over and over and over again. And I just, it drove me nuts. And now I just did it. But I had to. I'm parched. Anyway, so that's what's been going on. We were in San Francisco. We flew. We had to take the worst flight. So I have clients who are, you know, they're very, they're very financially secure because they're, you know, retired or I don't know, they didn't quit their job to become a fitness trainer. And so they have the luxury of saying, well, I want to fly on a flight that's convenient that I don't, 
I'm not destroyed. And, you know, money isn't their main driver on a flight. Not saying they waste their money, but I'm just saying the, the money isn't the number one goal. They're not looking for the cheapest damn flight. I'm looking for the cheapest damn flight. Can I get out there for 20 bucks? I don't care if it takes me six days. That's how I am sometimes. Um, and we really wanted to get out to California this month because Ray hasn't seen his family since January. And um, the only way that we could cobble together flights we could afford because they were so expensive. I mean, we're talking like $800 round trip nonstop. I do not have $1,600 just sitting in my pocket. What do I do with this? So, um, and then being away from work, you know, trying to get a shorter trip so that we're not wasting two days of travel, which loses income, which is then not, you know, it's counterproductive. Anyway, long story short, our flight home was fine. I was able to use points and get get us home on JetBlue, which I love JetBlue. Oh my gosh, their seats are ginormous. Their normal seats are ginormous and their normal rows are ginormous. And you get free Wi-Fi the whole time and it's literally the most comfortable. And you get plantain chips as a snack, which is, you know, a lot better than garbage Cheez-Its. Anyway, so the flight home was like easy um, we just had a little tiny layover, but getting there was a nightmare. The only way that I could figure out a way for us to get there was to fly on Frontier. Frontier, think of the Greyhound bus. Now think of something worse than a Greyhound bus. That is Frontier Airlines. But it was like $70 each, which, you know, it didn't need to be that cheap. But it was the only flight that got us out of here on a Monday night after work and then got us there on Tuesday morning. So it was like the equivalent of a red eye. But we left here at 10 p.m. and then flew into Vegas. And then with the time difference, we were supposed to land in Vegas at 1230 in the morning. And then our flight out to San Francisco was at 6 a.m. So five and a half hours sleeping in the Las Vegas airport with a dog. So that was fun. Our flight out, though, was delayed because we got on the plane with, okay, I am not an incredibly judgy person unless I am drinking alcohol. If I'm drinking alcohol, watch out because I judge everyone. I'm a jerk. I'm a terrible, awful, judgmental person. This is something that I learned last year when I got drunk and got very, not drunk, I got tipsy and was very judgy. So normally I'm not judgy. I understand that style is all relative. Fashion is relative. someone being classy or not classy is a matter of opinion. But the people on this flight from Miami to Las Vegas for $69, this was some, I'm going to use the word ratchet. This was some ratchet fashion happening. Some of the trashiest looking outfits, I've I've never seen anything like it in one place. It was an entire plane full of people who look like they overdrew their checking account to buy the fake Louis Vuitton, but then just used a scarf to wrap up their boobs messily and then pulled on some Pokemon fluffy pajama pants and some fake Chanel house slippers and then got on an airplane. I literally saw that outfit. And then, you know, eyelashes that enter the plane an hour before they did. And then nails that were six inches long that were like bedazzled. But again, like this is, you know, the emphasis on the accessories, but like the clothing was optional and it was dirty and some of it was holy. 
And then I, it was insane. So we got on the plane with all of these incredibly fashionable humans and um, they were nice. There was nobody doing anything or behaving badly. It was just a visual buffet of um, a hot fever dream. So anyway, we got on the plane. By the way, Frontier Airlines, the one flight attendant was um, pissy, crabby, did not want to be there, didn't smile. The other one wasn't even wearing a uniform. He was wearing a long wool trench coat in Miami. And we were going to Vegas. And I said to him, I said, did you just come from somewhere very cold? And he said, no, I can't tolerate air conditioning. Oh, okay, bye. Literally. Anyway, we got on the plane. We got it loaded up. Then they said, we're sorry. There's something wrong with the plane. We have to move planes. Everyone got pissed. I'm like, excuse me, if there's something wrong with this plane, I will happily get the hell off this plane and go to a safe plane. Thank you for finding out. Thank you for telling me and getting me off of this plane. Why are you all mad? This, this has just saved your life potentially. Do you want to get on this broken plane and go somewhere? I do not. I do not. I decline. So anyway, they moved us to another plane relatively quickly. We got to Vegas. We didn't care because we had a long labor. And we um, got to Vegas, got off the plane, and laid down on the really comfortable cement floor of the airport and slept. And Gustavo slept. It was a lovely night. Um, we survived. But I woke up before Roy did. I just couldn't do it anymore. My back was cramped. My legs were cramped. So Gus and I played fetch, which he does not do quietly. But it was really fun to play fetch with Gus in the Las Vegas airport. So anyway, all that to say, it was a nightmare flight. It was, you know, it was necessary to save like uh, $1,500. But I'm excited for the day when I can make uh, airplane decisions based um, on something other than finances. I'm excited for that day to arrive (laughs) because that was a nightmare. But it was worth it to get out there and, you know, sometimes you got to do what you can do. And, you know, my diamond shoes are too tight. Some people have to, you know, don't, can't travel at all. So it's all relative. But anyway, so it was a great week out there. We, uh, we got to go on a nice hike. We went to a town called Fairfax, which if you have ever been to Fairfax, um, I want to live there. It is the most idyllic, cute little quaint town. They apparently reject all commercialism. So no Starbucks, no McDonald's, no chains of any kind. We ate at this place called the Hummingbird Cafe, New Orleans style food, fresh beignets, fresh beignets that were so hot and covered in powdered sugar. Roy could not take a bite because it was so hot. So he blew on it to cool it off. Idiot. Blue powdered sugar all over. That was really funny. I don't mean to call him an idiot. He called himself an idiot. It was funny. Anyway, Fairfax is my favorite. And I was like, this is amazing. We should just get married here. And then he told me that when he got married before, he got married in Fairfax. I'm like, oh, never mind. Just kidding. Awkward turtle. Anyway, so we just got back Friday night, back to work, back to life here. But when we were out there, we stopped at a little art store that I saw on this cute little street in San Rafael and they had origami paper and it prompted me to uh, recall why I love origami and tell Roy a little bit about my story with origami and that is what prompted this week's episode so I'm really excited to talk about my experience folding origami. So my story with origami goes back to 2009 which is hard to believe, 14 years ago, uh, almost 14 years ago. So when I was married the first time, 
when I left that marriage, which I guess I haven't talked a lot about here. I've talked extensively about marriage number two, but when I left my first marriage, it was after, um, I'd been with him for about 12 years. We had a son together and that relationship was really toxic and terrible. And the last few years of it were extremely, um, abusive, very controlling, um, it was all very controlling, but it came to a head in such a way that, um, it was really scary when it ended. Um, my ex-husband was very, he was a broken person, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And I always understood where it came from with him, but you know, that doesn't excuse it. And that doesn't make it bearable or something that you can or should live with. Um, but he had serious control issues and (laughs) this is putting it mildly. And, um, when I started to assert my personality as it were, when I kind of came into my own and realized, okay, I have value as a human being and I don't, I, I will not, I cannot live where I can't speak my, I can't have a voice in that house. I I didn't have freedom. Everything had to be approved by him. Um, I couldn't go places without his approval. He just locked me down hardcore. And I I started to push back, you know, when I started to kind of see my value and to say, no, it is not crazy that I want to go to dinner with my, my classmates or my coworkers. It is not unreasonable for me to go to Iowa to see my aunt and uncle and stay at their house and come back the next day. Those were things he wouldn't allow me to do sometimes or unless he was there or unless he had the car or unless there was something for him to do. The main thing is he couldn't handle being home alone by himself. So if I wanted to say, go with my sister to Iowa and see my grandma, I had to find something for him to do while I was gone. So, you know, set up a date with him and another guy for a movie night or something. It was ridiculous. He could not handle life by himself. And, um, you know, the more I wanted freedom to just simply live and exist and be a human being, um, the more, the more dangerous it got. He got very angry. He got very violently angry. Um, and, you know, he didn't beat me up. People often say it was abusive. Did you know, did you have physical violence? There wasn't a lot of physical violence. There were a couple of accidental physical violent situations. Um, he pushed me, um, into the front window and my head snapped back and broke the front window. And that was when I got really scared. Like he will, he will hurt me. Um, things like that happened where he wasn't like, I'm going to push your head through the window, but because he was pushing me, my head hit the window, cracked the window with my head, uh, got injured, things like that. But he was more of a manipulative person. He knew how to keep me scared. He knew how to play on my fears. I had never lived alone. I'd never been anywhere except living with my parents and then living with him. So I didn't have any idea how to navigate the world alone. I'd never been alone. I also didn't have much of an income. Even when I started working, when I started working, the first thing that he did was buy a brand new sports car so that my salary covered that and the insurance. He made sure to keep our finances so extended that I didn't I didn't have income that I could have myself. He put us into a financial nightmare. We just bought a big house. So I didn't have an income. I didn't have a way to support myself. I didn't know how to navigate life by myself. 
And he was such a master manipulator. He was a computer hacker. He was a computer genius. He would funnel all my email to him before it came to me um, to make sure that he knew everything everyone was saying to me or I was saying to him. He had a key logger on my computer. So if I typed something, he would get a log of every keystroke on my computer. So even if in an email I said, Donnie made me mad, he would hear it or read it and I would get in trouble. I would get in trouble in trouble. Like you shouldn't get in trouble with your husband. That even right there pisses me off that that's still in my vernacular. Anyway. And so, um, I was scared of him because he said, you know, if you ever leave, I will turn Steven against you, my son. Um, I will make sure that you cannot get a job. I will ruin you financially. You'll never get a penny out of me and I will make sure you never see Steven again. And so a lot of that stuff is, you know, obviously legally I had rights, but I didn't, I mean, I put nothing past him. So all of that to say, I was terrified of ever leaving him. And so we went to counseling the last year of our marriage and even our counselor just lost the ability to know what to do because reasoning with him was insane. He ran me off the road in my car after therapy because he didn't like that the therapist took my side on something. So then the next week at therapy, he's like, how'd it go? I'm like, well, he ran me off the road on the way home to teach me a lesson, to which, you know, Dr. Rush was like, uh, did you do that? He's like, well, yeah, I'm sorry. She made me look bad. You can't talk to me like that. You know, it just totally, he's like, you can't, you want to hurt your wife? You want to hurt the mother of your child? I mean, it was crazy. Anyway, so I was terrified of leaving because I believed that he would do all of that. And I had people in my life at that time, my sister, number one, saying, Kristen, you have to get out. He's not going to stop. You, he can't do those things to you. You can stand up for yourself. But I had never stood up for myself and I was terrified of him. And so it was a constant war of what he told me and he'd get in my head and I would just say, it's easier to stay here and keep him happy than it is. I'll just stay until Steven graduates and then I'll get out. It's fine. I can do this. And then he would get more violent or he'd lock me up or whatever would happen. And I would go to to counseling, go to my sister's, I'd get out for a couple weeks. And then eventually he convinced me to come back. Our marriage counselor at the time would say, you can't work on your marriage if you're not there. You need to go home. And every time I'd go home, I was more and more scared and more and more defeated. And it got to the point where I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I was just, I was a shell of a person. And, um, long story short, eventually convinced him that the only way for us to work on our marriage was if he would leave the house for a little while so that I could just breathe because I couldn't bear to go to counseling. I couldn't bear to sit in a room with him. I was completely crumbling. So he decided to go ahead and stay with our friends, move into their basement for a while to give me some breathing space. And we had an agreement that if he crossed any of the lines in this agreement, that we would no longer be in marriage counseling and I would be filing for divorce. Like he had one more shot. And on this list were things like, you can't put your hands on me. Um, You can't show up at the house unannounced and scare me because he would scare me. He would just show up and he would park outside of the house. He would just, I mean, any way that he could mentally torture me, he would. There's just all of these things. Well, it was about a week and he broke all of them. And so... Because he was already out of the house, I was able to change the locks and he couldn't come back. And that was a huge victory, a huge victory. But then here's me in my big house by myself for the first time faced with 
this is over. You're alone forever for the first time. And I was horrified. And I was in this position of, I can't do this. This is too hard. I have to go back to him, but I can't because I know, I know that I will, me as a human, I will die. Like my soul will die. I knew I couldn't go back, but I knew I couldn't stay alone. I was just horrified at this whole being alone thing. And I I dealt with it very poorly. I'd stopped eating. I didn't eat much. I didn't sleep. I was working as a temp at the time. And I mean, I could barely function. I I, I would go to bed and I would just stay there, stay up in panic. And um, I just got through a couple of months. I think he moved out in August. And I got through a couple of months of just barely surviving. And um, I got mono in November. I can't remember all the details. But the bottom line is he moved out in August. And by November, I was very sick. I got mono and um, when you get mono, you have to basically rest for a long time to let your body heal. And I had met this guy, Kat. I ended up dating Kat for five years. I just met him. Um, we were friends and he had taught me origami. So when I met him, he folded me one when we had coffee. It was so nice. And then he taught me how to fold them. And I had gotten some origami paper and I had kind of done a few, whatever, thought it was fun. Well, when I ended up sick in bed with mono, I was sitting up in my bedroom. I couldn't leave the house, couldn't go anywhere. My son had to go stay with his dad because of the fact I was so sick. I couldn't do anything and it was just me. And I was terrified. Here I was alone and then physically alone. Nobody could visit me and I had nothing to do except sit with my thoughts. And I had origami paper and so I sat in bed and I put on TV or whatever and I would just started to fold origami cranes. I thought, well, I can work on these a thousand cranes and then I'll get a wish. So I thought, that's something I can work on. So I started folding. And as I sat there, the fears would just come to my mind. I was afraid of everything. And I got the idea to write down a fear on a square of paper and then fold it into a crane. And while I was folding the crane, I would imagine that fear coming true. So basically, okay, what's the worst that can happen? So one of my biggest fears was what if I can't pay for this house? What if I don't have a place to live? I don't know how I'm gonna make a living. I'm not working right now and I can't afford this house. Where am I gonna live? Okay, well, got to move out of this house. You can get an apartment. I can't leave an apartment. I lived in this big, beautiful house. What will people say? People will say that you had to start over and you'll be fine. Yeah. Well, what if I can't afford an apartment? Well, you can stay with your sister. Oh my God. I don't want to stay with my sister. She has two dogs. I didn't like my sister's dogs. They were big and hairy. It's like, well, if you had to stay with your sister, you could stay with your sister. It wouldn't be fun, but you could stay with your sister. And so basically through that process of talking out what's the worst that can happen, can you deal with it? And just determining, okay, I'm scared of not being able to stay in this house. I'm gonna have to move. I may even have to live with my sister for six months with those dogs. Can I do it? Yeah, I could do that. All right, now I'm not afraid of that anymore. Fold that fear up, throw it in a pile, 
Then another fear would come to me. What if I'm alone forever? That one was a tough one. I wrote that down a lot. What if no one ever loves me again? Well, <laughs> I guess I'll just date a lot and go out on lots of dates and get to know lots of people. And then maybe I could get a girl roommate. That could be fun. Maybe Anna would move up to Minnesota and we could be roommates. Donnie's cousin and I were good friends. And I just thought of all the scenarios of what I would do if I never had love again, if no one ever loved me, if I was single for the rest of my life. That was tough to really say, well, what if that is what happens? Because that could happen. You know, I was really overweight. I didn't feel I was attractive. Um, and that was hard. I was like, well, I may never be in love again. I may never have sex again. Uh, that was something that I had to contend with. That was a fear. I mean... And so I wrote it down, folded it away. What if people find out? A lot of people didn't know the details. What if people find out? What if they blame me? Well, that one came true. Lots of people took Donnie's side for a long time. But what if they do? Well, I know the truth. If they, if they believe him or they find out what happened and they judge me and they think I should stay, well, should I stay because of them? Or should I do what I know is right. I knew it was right to take control of my life and to get away from that abuse. That one ended up coming true. And thank God I was okay with it if it had happened. Because sure enough, one of my son's friends, uh, their parents called me up and told me that if I was following God enough, if I was spiritual enough and holy enough, God would change Donnie and he'd no longer be allowed to hurt me. God would protect me from him. I was like, well, thank you very much, sir. Uh, thank you for telling me that, that I, this is all my fault. I'm not holy and godly enough. That's why my husband locks me up and screams at me for hours and um, all manner of other things that we aren't going to talk about. Thanks. Good to know. There were also a lot of people who knew me my whole life who listened to Donnie Saab stories saying that I was rebellious and wanted to break up our family. None of those people called and asked me my side. They believed him. And I let them. And then it wasn't very long before they saw through his garbage, every single one of those people came to me and said, oh my God, I am so sorry. So sorry that I didn't at least ask you. I'm so sorry I didn't support you. And I just shrug and say, he's a master manipulator and he got a lot of people, but I didn't stay angry or bitter. I expected that that might happen. I had come to terms with the fact that, that might happen. I stopped being afraid of that happening. And uh, as a lady in our old church used to say, God keeps the books. Eventually, the truth is always known. The true colors show. Donnie's colors showed. And so did mine. And those people understood the truth. And not to say that they all turned on him. They're all still very kind to him, but... Ultimately, in any divorce, there are two very different perspectives, and neither perspective is, is always completely wrong. There's a little bit of truth in both sides, but a lot of times people don't say anything because they don't know what to say, and it's not necessarily because they believe the other side or, or because they want to pick a side, but because it's just awkward for everybody else. And so if this is you, little sidebar. Let people just be themselves. Don't assume people are siding against you or for you. Let people live their own lives, have their own opinions. You have enough to worry about. 
without worrying about other people's opinions. The people who love you will love you forever. And the people who only love you for certain reasons, that will, that will come to light. And you're better off for knowing it. Anyway, so I folded these cranes and I would write my fear down. I would imagine it coming true until I was okay with that fear. If this fear happens, I'm going to be just fine. To where I really figured out there's nothing to actually be afraid of. And when I kind of ran out of fears, I found that folding was really, really joyful. And I started to then think about the people in my life that I loved. And so then I started writing people's names in cranes. I'd write someone's name. And then as I folded it, I would think about them. And then I started writing down things I was grateful for. And as I was folding, I would think about why I was grateful for that thing. And I started filling that pile. It just grew astronomically. And those, those cranes that were full of all those fears written down were completely overshadowed by how many cranes with people's names and gratitude items in them. And it changed my perspective on my situation. Now, everything didn't get easy right away. It was still an incredibly difficult process to completely follow through, leave him, file for divorce, get out of that house, all the things I had to do to start over. But that process of being stuck in bed for three weeks, folding origami, facing my fears, and then overcoming those with simply, I can get through my worst fears. It transformed my heart into one that was very empowered. And then to surround my heart and mind and soul and thoughts with the people that I did love, the people who were in my corner and why, and the gratitude that I had for what I did have, what I do have, what I possessed, the experiences, it changed my experience of walking through that difficult time into one of empowerment And it wasn't all the time. I didn't do it all perfectly. But that process of those cranes was so important for my journey through that dark time. I ended up folding a thousand. It took me a little while. I don't remember how long. Maybe it took me six months. I don't know. I did it off and on. But I folded those thousand cranes. And by the time I finished, I would already moved out. I was in a different apartment. Nobody was looking down on me. I was able to pay my bills. Yes, my parents helped me. No, I didn't have to live with my sister. Not that she's terrible, but I really didn't like living with... When I stayed with her, when I would leave Donnie for a couple weeks, like I would wake up in the morning and their hunting dogs would have pushed the door open on my spare room and like be in the bed. And I love dogs, but I don't like dogs that shed because I'm allergic. And they just be... I'm like, what are you doing? And then I'd go in the bathroom to brush my teeth and there'd be dog hair on my toothbrush. And if you know me, I change my toothbrush almost every day. Okay, I only like dirty toothbrushes. I really don't like dog hair on my toothbrush. So like the idea of having to live there was just, yeah. So I didn't end up having to live there with those dogs. And um, I was able to take care of myself. I was able to move into a good job. I was able to get on my feet. Yes, it was very difficult, but I did it. And I think a lot of the reason why it went as smoothly as it did is because I was able to sit in that room, face my fears, work out in advance what the worst possible scenario would be and how I would, yes, overcome and endure that. And then anything else that happened was going to be easier than my worst fears. So if I could get through all that stuff, I imagined then I could get through anything else. So origami beautiful, beautiful part of my life. If you've seen me, you know I have an origami crane tattooed on my left shoulder. It's my first tattoo. Remember my mother cried when she saw it. It was a very bad day. (laughs) But I love it. It means so much to me. And I, 
when people ask me, oh, I love your crane, um, I love to tell them that story. I folded a thousand and I got a wish. By the time I'd folded a thousand, I didn't need the thing that I wished for. And what I wished for was peace of mind, but I already had it before I ever finished a thousand cranes. I worked it out through the process of folding, through the process of facing my fears. So I hope you find the lesson in that. The overwhelming lesson isn't go fold origami. The overwhelming lesson is that fear is an idea of something terrible happening and your inability to cope with that thing. So to say, what am I afraid of? What if it came true? How would I deal? Because sometimes things we're really afraid of, they're going to happen. And the more we fear them, the more likely they are to happen. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, as they say. So there's truly nothing you can't endure. There is nothing you can't endure. I want you to say that out loud. There is nothing I can't endure. You are a human. Therefore, you are powerful. You can endure loss. You can endure tragedy. You can endure losing absolutely everything and starting completely over from, from experience. There's nothing you can't endure. So anything that you fear, you can overcome that too. You may be afraid of losing someone you love. That will be very sad, but you will endure. You may lose your business. You may lose your income. You may lose your home. You will endure. You have tenacity and power beyond your wildest imagination, but why don't you sit for a moment and imagine how you would overcome I used to be afraid of not having a car, of not having a home of my own. Now I'm in Miami. I rent a condo. I just sold my car. I have no car. I have very little in the way of assets. And that used to terrify me. Now it's a freedom thing for me. I love it. What I used to be afraid of, I actually crave. I'm not saying that that is something you have to do. But the things that we fear have power over us. And when we can face them, we become powerful over those fears. And then the peace that flows in when there's nothing you're truly afraid of gives way to your ability then to focus on what you do have, what you're grateful for, the assets in your life, the people that surround you. Instead of being afraid of losing people, be grateful for them. Bask in the glory and the beauty of the fact they are existing in your life today. It's transformative. It doesn't change all of the circumstances of life that are difficult, but it changes you and empowers you to walk through the things that life throws at you with so much more peace, with more equanimity to say, this is just how it is. And I am powerful to endure. And if you don't feel like you're capable of enduring your worst nightmare right now, if those things happen, at that time, you will be equipped. You will. Human beings are incredibly powerful. Why? Because your flesh suit is filled with a soul that is pure energy, power, and light, period. So the origami cranes taught me all of that. Of course, life experience as well. But if you want to learn about origami, it's really fun. It's a really inexpensive hobby. You can get a pack of, you don't even need to buy paper, but the paper is nice because typically creases really nicely and holds a fold. But it's a really, really easy little uh, little practice. I still do it now when I get a little agitated or if I'm bored. It keeps my fingers busy and it reminds me of just how lucky and blessed I am and how wonderful and beautiful life is. And, you know, um, it's a great hobby. So there's your story and there's your lesson. 
I took a boot camp on being a public speaker and it said, all you need to tell is a story or all you need for a speech is a story and a lesson. So I think I, I got those two boxes. There's your story and your lesson. Face your fears and bask in gratitude. The end. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I'm so excited you're here. If you want to interact with me, go ahead and send me an email, Kristen at kristensmithonline.com. Follow me on Instagram, The Kristen Experience, and make sure you share this podcast with a friend. That's all I have for you today. Have an awesome week. We'll see you next time here on Destination Begin.